Welcome to the Brick by Brick podcast, where we take you from the ground up on all things real estate. I'm your host, Ben Shelley. We are fortunate to have Ryan and John back with us today. The focus of this episode will be managing the construction process. While we've discussed investing in real estate at length in this podcast, today we want to focus on the backbone of every real estate investment, construction. If you're like me, just getting started in your real estate career, I know the construction aspect of the business can cause a lot of stress. So we're going to take today's episode to try to address some of the most vital aspects of succeeding in the construction business. So guys, I'm going to start as basic as I can possibly get. Tell me what a general contractor is. That's a great question. It's actually not a basic question. I think there's a big misunderstanding about what a general contractor is and what a general contractor does. In my book, a general contractor is a project manager. So they're the person overseeing the entire start to finish of a construction project. They might not be actually out there personally swinging a hammer. They might not even have people that work for them directly, like employees of theirs swinging a hammer, but they're keeping the whole construction process in line. So they're working with subcontractors and we can discuss what a subcontractor is later on. They're working with subcontractors, permits, licenses, all the nitty gritty stuff, making sure that that gets done. And in an ideal world, hypothetically, you could go to a general contractor and say, here's my plan, here's my money, get it done in this time period, and they'll get it done. That's not what happens almost ever in reality, but that is generally how I would think a general maybe, contractor is. Maybe never is. in reality. No, maybe never in reality. <laughs> I don't know. Right. I think oftentimes there's another misconception is you'll be at Home Depot and you'll bump into somebody and you'll start talking to them and asking them where you can find a new switch for your kitchen light and they'll tell you they're a general contractor and they can help you with whatever problems that, that you have. And you think, oh, great, this GC is going to solve all my problems. And, you know, I've got this whole, this huge project for them to tackle. And now I've got my guy. I prefer Lowe's for what it's worth. <laughs> um, Should we start I, singing jingles? Actually, no, I, I love Home Depot. Home Depot, <laughs> I actually prefer. I can, we can the get return it. it's a different policy, podcast. wow. That's <laughs> no, a great point. It's very true. Sorry, Ryan. Anywho, um, the point to distinguish there is there are general contractors in the sense that they do general construction and they are, in a lot of respects, handymen. And then there are the class of quote-unquote general contractors in the true, like, capital G, capital C way that John described before, which is in more of the project management type role where they oversee the project at a very high level and they're in charge of coordinating all of the moving parts, particularly on a larger project when it comes to the subcontractors and all of the different trades and the timeline and the plans and the permitting, et cetera. Yeah. And a capital G, capital C general contractor usually is licensed and has insurance. So a lot of the guys that you run into at Lowe's or Home Depot will not have a license or insurance or whatever else. Nor, nor will your general handyman, and we can get into to when that would be required later. But a general contractor is normally going to have a license and insurance, and you can look up their license in the state registries, et cetera, et cetera. Of course, I do think it's also important to note, especially for early uh, investors just doing their first project or f- some of their first few projects, that not to be, and this is sort of intimated from, from Ryan's point as well, not to be intimidated by that G and that C in front of the name of somebody, to understand that this is your project, that these people work for you. If you don't know, ask questions, make sure you know, you're going to be a little self-conscious undoubtedly about what you do and don't know. I know I have been in starting with you guys and in tackling our first projects, but I think that it's important to also recognize sort of what you know and what you don't know, but also what your contractor knows and doesn't know. And I know we have some funny stories about some of those first experiences, but before we go to those, I also have this question, right? You're going in, you're you're looking around at the, the sort of construction landscape. We're talking about running into GCs at like stores. So it begs the question, how do I find a general contractor? The two places I would start are in your network and in your backyard. So the first, I would approach anyone who you know who is active in the construction space or who uh, has done a project of their own recently, and I would ask them what the nature of the project was, how they felt the project went, um, who they used, and obviously what their thoughts were on that contractor. The second thing I would recommend is to look around your neighborhood and find projects that are similar in nature to your own, particularly when you're talking about a whole house renovation or something larger. I would look for structures that are similar because housing stock can vary a lot and renovating an old Victorian is a very different beast from renovating a 
Frank Lloyd Wright-inspired mid-century modern house. Shout out. <laughs> Shout out, Frank Lloyd Wright. So I would, I would approach the two. I would first go down both of those rabbit holes before resorting to something like Yelp or Home Advisor or something like that, where I think there's a little bit of gamesmanship going on. John? Well, if you happen to be in the uh, northern New Jersey area, I have a great... I, it, uh, you know <laughs> what? I was thinking about making the plug. You son of a... I mean, really, this guy. <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, but I, uh, I, I agree. I just with, love where your instincts are. Uh, I know. I, I agree with Ryan. Um, I have found contractors... Well, so to... We did an episode on networking, and that's... A, if you go to meetup groups or networking groups for real estate investors, you will invariably find contractors. And if you're... One distinction that I draw, I think, is a. There are obviously general contractors that that do both of these types of jobs, and and we are one of them. But there certainly are contractors that do more work for investors as opposed to primary home owners, residents. And if you're an investor and and you want to work in that space, working with a general contractor who has experience working with investors, who therefore understands budgets, timelines, the types of finishes that you need is is important. So if you talk to a general contractor, say, hey, what type of work do you generally do? Is it for homeowners, for investors, single family, multifamily, whatever? I think that's true. And, and, and I think what's interesting is from our own experiences, I know having fielded just a few of these calls to date, a lot of times people will say, the first things they'll ask on the phone aren't necessarily, can you do this work? They'll say, where do you work? I think that's a really important thing. So does the contract, can you find a contractor that has experience in your area? And that relates a little bit to what Ryan was talking about, about looking in your surrounding area. And then what what are your capabilities in terms of scope? And then obviously those methods uh, combined can help you hopefully locate the right person for your job. Another, just sorry to cut you off, yeah, but another please. critical point, particularly in this area, uh, regarding finding someone local is the fact that all these building departments are very different. Each municipality, at least in New Jersey, every municipality for the most part has its own building department. And so if you happen to find some, the one contractor or one of the few contractors who does a lot of work in your specific town, particularly with a bigger project, their relationships with the building department and with the inspectors and their knowledge of what the city's and building departments' specific requirements are will go a long way. Yeah, I mean, it's it's so funny you mentioned that too because from my own experience coming into these different uh, building departments has been almost wild. I mean, just the different the difference in the people who work there, uh, the different expertise, uh, the different looks, um, not just in terms of the looks of the building, but with, in all honesty, in the demographic, because different municipalities also have varying demographics. And this, have, this, is, uh, uh, this has cultural history to, to it, socioeconomic history to it. But that's a, a very vital point, because I think maybe the main goal of the GC to, in summation is to guide you through this process so that you can build your home to code and pass inspections and, uh, you know, get your certificate of occupancy. So um, I want to sort of pivot here. Once you've hired the GC, is there a particular way uh, you would go about addressing or talking with your general contractor, maybe from the beginning as it pertains to the scope of work, uh, or is it more generic across the board? Every project is certainly unique. And I mean, the, the types of projects that you might hire a general contractor for would range from, you know, redoing a bathroom or a kitchen to gut renovating a house, doing an addition to a house or ground up construction uh, of a house even. So one of the most important things to know or to think about when approaching a general contractor is what exactly is the scope of what I'm doing. And if you don't have the knowledge base to even do that, then I would say, think about it and search online and watch some YouTube videos about it. I mean, we work most, mostly with investors, and investors often know what they want out of a property, but it's very frustrating both from the contracting side and also from, I think, the client side or the investor side, whatever you want to say it, for someone to say, oh, I want you know, my house to look better. It's like, well, what does that mean? Like, what do you want? You know, do you want paint? I don't know, you John, want... better. Right. It's like, I want, or, you know, that no one will say that. That's insane. But someone will say like, you know, I want, I want to redo the kitchen. And it's like. And then well, they'll show you pictures from house or from HGTV and they'll say, I just want it to look like that. Right. Right. And so it's like, when you say redo, do you mean make it bigger, same size? Do you want different materials, new materials? Do you want to replace the cap? You know, and people have crazy. Shifting the layout. I think that's, a, right. that's, that's something in particular that right. goes overlooked. Uh, that's that's a big difference between just upgrading the cosmetics with the existing footprint versus turning it on its head and essentially starting from scratch. Oh, absolutely. And there, and there are 
big cost differences too. So, you know, something that happens a lot is there's, you know, sticker shock with general contractors. So you'll say, I want to redo the kitchen and then the price will be $40,000 and be, oh my gosh, that's way more than I want to spend $10,000. And the reason is because you wanted to, instead of keeping the sink where it was, you wanted to move it onto an island and you wanted to, instead of moving, instead of keeping the stove where it was, you want to move it to the opposite side of the kitchen, which requires running all new plumbing and whatever else. So if, if you're not knowledgeable enough to think, oh, well, if I move the sink or if I move the stove, that's going to be a tremendously large cost, then it would be helpful to either gain that knowledge or to find a general contractor that's going to explain that to you and say, look, we can redo the kitchen like this. It's going to cost that. We can do this. It's going to cost that, whatever else. So some general contractors are great at that. Some are not great at that. It just depends on what you're doing and who you contact. And we are great at that, Ryan. <laughs> uh, <laughs> We're the best. I mean, there's no one better. <laughs> to me, the two foundational components of this are communication and expectation. I think John alluded to the expectation front quite, quite a bit and quite well just now. But to expound upon that, um, the expectation really sets the precedent and that in like to a, to a large extent is context driven. So an investor who's buying a property that's going to be a rental property or an investor who's buying a property for the sake of flipping it is going to have a very different set of expectations than somebody who just bought a piece of land for a million dollars and is building their $3 million dream home and who wants every single last detail to be carefully thought about, carefully curated, and carefully addressed. So, so, uh, and I don't mean to, to cut, cut you off, but I, I guess just kind of getting into the weeds a little bit more here, what are the kinds of things that go into creating, you know, a quote-unquote good scope of work? We talk about communication and expectation, but obviously, I think creating your scope of work is vital for a lot of reasons, one of which being also financing, because you're, you're going to probably borrow a certain amount of money to do that construction work. So maybe talking a little bit about for a new investor, how do I go about creating a scope of work that is appropriate for my project? And how do I work with the GC in doing that? I think ideally it's a collaborative process between the investor and the GC. I and think, the architect. And the architect, right. So there, there it, it's important to consider that there are other components to putting together a project. So in northern New Jersey, I think it's true everywhere, but particularly where we operate in northern New Jersey, there are a lot of requirements that the city will impose on you to do work. And one of them oftentimes is having an architect to do architectural drawings or whatever it is that you're doing. So sometimes a general contractor will have an architect or a, a drafts person kind of on staff or on file. And you can say, hey, just use this, this person to do the drafting work. Other times it will be the expectation that you will have to go to that architect or drafts person to figure it out. So that would be step one is saying, well, if I want to do something pretty major, I might want to go to an architect or a general contractor that I really trust and say, hey, here's what I want to do. What do you think I need to get in place to start with? I think it it harkens back to my point before. It was if, if you don't have the knowledge base to even say, here's what I conceivably want, then it's going to be, to use a specific example, uh, I'm thinking about one, we had a project where we had someone come in, someone called us in, in Jersey City, they wanted to totally renovate their row house, basically, and they wanted to expand it, make it larger. So they wanted to push out the first floor, push out the second floor, create a rooftop deck, finish the basement, all that sort of stuff. And pretty immediately it became apparent that they knew a little bit about real estate and maybe a little bit about construction because they knew kind of what they wanted it to look like, but had no conception of the cost of what it would be. So or, the, or the logistics. Or the logistics. So the, it's a row house, so there's no way to get machinery back to the rear of the property. Step That's like the first problem. So they wanted to expand the building by a significant amount, like, I don't know, 20 feet or something like that. And also dig out a full basement below that expansion and make their existing basement deeper. So immediately my thought was, well, we can't get like a backhoe here because there's no way to get stuff to the back of the property. There's no way to stuff to get to the front of the property. Basically. There's no access to the rear of the property from the front. So all of that's going to have to be done with like shovels like by hand, essentially. So that, that itself enormously increases the cost. Everything else that he wanted to, like rearranging every single wall in the building, the rooftop deck, all sort of stuff. I mean, we were looking at a scope that was like 
probably maybe it would have been cheaper to rip down the whole building and just redo the whole thing mm. to begin with. And it was pretty obvious that he had no conception of what that was. I think he thought that we were going to charge like 50 grand for this work when like probably we needed to charge like three or four hundred thousand dollars because it was so crazy. And the other the other issue with that instance was the lack of communication and the again the the poor expectation. So anytime we had kind of broached the topic and and to an extent this is on us as well for not understanding that this information is as vital as it really is uh, to avoid us wasting our time. But he was very hesitant to divulge any type of information like what is your budget. And he was doing that from, I think, from a negotiating standpoint. I think he wanted to see where we would come in and then negotiate based off of that rather than saying, oh, my budget's $250,000 and then have us just kind of work backwards into his budget, which we wouldn't have done anyway. Yeah. I don't want to go on a crazy tangent here, but that's a great topic, talking about budgets and pricing. Yeah. Is that where well, you want to go, Ben? Well, we'll get there, oh, we but I, get there. Yeah, we'll get there. Hold I'm your horses so now. I'm so excited. Let's talk about money. He's, he's jumping through the microphone as we speak. I was going to say, you know, again, I, I think a lot of these topics, when it talks about the relationship with GCs, does come back to communication, expectation, the emphasis there. But I think maybe it's helpful for uh, both new and experienced investors to hear this conversation, at least it is for me, because you begin to have an appreciation. I think it's sort of like brokers to an extent, is some of the perception around brokers in the tri-state area. With GCs, I think everyone is always on the lookout for someone trying to do one over on them. And I think it's important to realize that this kind of confusion happens on both sides, that there's nervousness and and sometimes miscommunication and lack of a clear expectation set on both sides of the aisle. And so it is so important, especially I think if you have a lower knowledge base or if you're nervous about pricing, to be communicative, to go out and say, hey, here are my expectations, regardless of whether or not you're an investor or you're building your dream home in Livingston, New Jersey. Yeah. All I right. Mean- I would I would super appreciate it if we go to a project and it's a big project if the person that we're going to work for says hey look my budget is this, this. amount yeah. great like yeah. I I mean that doesn't necessarily mean to me that I will that will be exactly my quote to you it just means that I have a, an understanding of what it is that you want to do and then if you say hey I want to my budget is fifty grand but I want to you know put another floor on my house and redo everything on that third floor doing new roof well look that's impossible that can't be done for 50 grand so let's talk about a way that we could work together that would be more helpful for you more helpful for me um you know it, it just uh it's very frustrating to waste time because it wastes time for us too as a contractor trying to come up with a number if it's like oh well the, the but we think our number is one hundred and eighty five thousand dollars and then he's like well my budget's thirty grand it's like well we just wasted a couple hours coming yeah. up with that number because there was you know, well, and, you know if I, and I think construction is in some ways uniquely difficult in that way because it is such a mystery to, to most people um, the the pricing is just that there's no there's no menu there's no menu for right. pricing yeah, which, exactly. which in some cases isn't necessarily true it's just not always communicated as such and so people just think that the contractor is taking advantage of them when in reality the breakdown there is just the gap in understanding of what renovating a bathroom truly takes. So, um, the, oh, sorry. sorry yeah. the, no. other, the other point I wanted to just circle back on is when it comes to creating a scope of work, notwithstanding the obstacles that John and I just discussed or that the three of us just discussed, once you do get to the point where you are moving forward with the project and you're in the ballpark when it comes to budgeting uh, and you're creating your ironclad scope of work, the most important thing to focus on is documenting every single detail that you possibly can. Um, That includes both high-level things and as specific as how many recessed light fixtures are going in bedroom number three and potentially even what layout they're going to be. Or where the light switches, things like that. Right. And, And this also ties into the value of having a an ironclad set of drawings of architectural plans because that, that is going to have an electrical plan embedded in it which should specify all of these things and if you're at that point in the process where you're where you have electrical plans then chances are you're moving forward with the project so spend some time and look through those plans review them in gory detail and if there are some things that you're not quite certain on, go back to the property and walk through and maybe mark things out and try to put yourself in the space as it will be when it's finished, which I understand can be tough when, you know, some people just don't think super visually, but some one trick that can be really helpful is just taping out the layout on the, on the ground. So if you have unfinished plywood flooring or something like that, just 
take like blue masking tape and just mark out where the walls are going to be, where the doorways are going to be, where the cabinets are going to be, where the toilet's going to be. You'll get a sense of like how much clearance there is between the counter and the refrigerator. You'll get a sense of of where the, the toilet is in relation to the vanity. Or the refrigerator. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Depending on what kind of setup you have. So, so maybe on that theme, though, of, of keeping track of everything, of writing everything down, documenting everything, one of the things I think that also helps with is if you're in the middle of your either renovation or teardown or reconstruction, what have you, and you want to change something as you're going through the process. Now, a lot of people have heard the term change order. Maybe we can talk a little bit about what that means and how that is priced in the course of construction. Yeah, I think Inevitably, there will be things that come up during even the most well-thought-out project that are unexpected. It's kind of a... A lot of times, people are hesitant to even begin renovation projects because the idea is that, well, when I open up a wall, opening up a wall meaning like when I take off the drywall of the wall and look behind it, I'm just going to discover a lot of things that I need to fix. That happens to me every single time that I've ever done that. So you open up a wall and you'd be like, oh, gosh, like I, I didn't realize that you know, there was this crazy electrical issue hiding behind this wall or that everything is rotten or that there's a plumbing problem or whatever. So, I mean, once you do that, you have the option to not fix it for certain, but it's almost insane to not fix it because the effort that it takes to put up a wall and finish it, maybe it's in a bathroom, so you have tile on the wall. The effort to do that is going to be a lot. So when the wall is open, you might as well take care of it. So that's a pretty common type of change order where it's like, oh, we opened up the wall and we found that the main sewer line of your entire house is cracked and we have to replace it and that could be five grand. The other you know, flip side of it is, you yourself as the owner might say, oh, well, now that we've gone through the process and now that I've seen what's going on, I myself want to make a change to the scope of the work. And that's totally fine. To Ryan's initial point, knowing that initially is way easier both for probably your pocketbook and also for the project itself. But a change order is when a general contractor will say, okay, now that we've changed the scope of the work, either because you've desired it or because I have strongly recommended it or because there's something way unanticipated that we discovered during the process, we need to go back and change the scope of what we're doing. And they have a reputation for being expensive because it might be the case that that was just not originally factored in and therefore requires a lot more time, maybe another permit, maybe another license, maybe another even subcontracting trade to come in and do something. I would say bad general contractors will sometimes use change orders as a way to make money. So they'll say, oh, I didn't charge enough at the beginning, or this project is taking longer than I thought, and I'm not going to make any money in it. So now I need to make a phony change order. And in order to put in, you know, a this different type of sink than what you said, it's going to be $3,000, even though the sink itself is only $100 more or something like that. That happens. It's happened to me. It's probably happened to you, Ryan. But... That would be, I would say, telltale sign of a bad general contractor. <laughs> on, the, on the scale of good to bad. And so that brings me also to this, this fundamental question, which, John, you were jumping out of your seat earlier to talk about, which is very both very broad and specific at the same time, which is pricing. Um, and Ryan, you, you can continue maybe the conversation a little bit about change orders and expectations of pricing there. But just generally, I mean, standard construction, right? This great mystery. Maybe we can try to unravel this uh, for people like me and people listening. But can you talk to us a little bit about what are just some standard construction costs that you can run through that vary from project to project? I'm going to be honest with you. I hate this question. It's hard. <laughs> because it, it's hard and it's loaded. And it's I'm really glad I'm hard. asking you the question. <laughs> yeah, it's, re it's really hard to give an answer without having context and without caveating it like crazy. Let's take, let's take a bathroom renovation as an example. On the surface, if you break it down to the components of a bathroom, you're looking at generally a vanity, a bath or shower, and a toilet. Then you have things like flooring, which is usually tile. Oftentimes you have tile on the walls as well. You have cement board as an underlayment for the flooring, which sometimes is also generally goes on top of plywood subfloor as well. You have Green board, um, which is the moisture-resistant moisture sheetrock that typically is, is used in a bathroom. You have certain light fixtures. You have bath accessories. And then you have paint. I'm sure I'm missing some details that may be uh, usually like an exhaust fan of some sort. Well, you have all plumbing and all electrical right. work. So that is, I guess, what you would see. For the most part, that's what you will see on the surface. But... The reason why this is such a difficult question to answer is that doesn't get into 
that doesn't even really touch on all of the components that make the bathroom what it is, which is the nuts and bolts of the plumbing and the electrical. So you can have the nicest toilet, the nicest vanity, and the nicest shower in the world, but if the plumbing behind the wall doesn't work or clogs every other time you use it, then your bathroom is going to drive you absolutely crazy. And to John's point earlier, while you're doing this project, if you look behind the walls and you realize that you're working with like a corroded cast iron stack from 100 years ago that is leaking or clogged or just has seen better days, you'd be foolish not to go in and replace it now when the vast majority of the work has already been done. So that's going to cost more, but it's going to, in the long run, cost way less than when your stack starts to leak like crazy or doesn't flush or everything, you know, nothing gets through the line and backs up into your brand new bathroom and then you have to rip everything out and start from scratch again. Yeah, I want to approach the topic from a different, maybe a different um, thinking, which is just to just to say, everyone should understand that contractors are not necessarily good at figuring out how much things will cost. They're just not. So we're not that good at it. I mean, I think that we're getting better at it. I've met so many contractors that are really bad at it. And there are a bunch of different ways that contractors can figure out how much stuff is supposed to cost. And, and I'll describe them to you. The first is that a lot of contractors literally, I shouldn't say a lot, some contractors will literally pick a number out of thin air. <laughs> I guarantee you this happens. And, and like, I, yeah, 20,000 <clears> sounds right. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, like it, it sounds funny, but I mean, and, and, and I don't, it's funny until you experience well, it. Well, I don't yeah. say that as a bad thing. It's not mm. necessarily that they're like super crazy wrong, but they'll just say, well, based on my experience and based on my general thought process, I just think that it's going to be about this. And they'll they'll usually give you, you know, kind of an, an estimate or something that says like services and it'll have a number <laughs> and that'll just be the number they came up with. I mean, this happens more often than you might think. And, and so people get cynical about the industry because of this doesn't mean that the, their number is wrong. They might have just just thought of it randomly and that actually might be actually how much that they're going to charge, but that does happen. The second way is that you'll have uh, an estimator. An estimator is like its own class of person who has usually a lot of construction experience and is familiar with how a construction project will go. And an estimator will say, well, I think that the materials cost for this particular scope of work will be this number because it's this many square feet of flooring and this many square feet of drywall and whatever else. The estimator will also say, well, I think it's going to be this many man hours of work. And I think that each laborer or each person's working is going to be paid about this much money. And we're going to bake in a margin there. Um, the margin is going to be that our cost, the general contractor's cost, and margins can vary a lot. They can be anywhere between, I would say, single-digit percentages up to 20%, 25%. It, just, it depends on the work. And that is normally the compensation for the general contractor. In an ideal world, an estimate will say, your costs, your labor costs, and your materials costs are this, and you will charge a 15% margin, and that's what I take home as the general contractor for my effort in arranging everything, getting permits, getting licenses, um, project managing the whole thing for you. That's my fee. Um, if I'm if I'm wrong, if the the materials cost or the labor cost is too high, then that just cuts into my margin. Or it could be wrong the other way. I actually overestimated. Therefore, I get to keep you know the difference between what I thought I was going to pay out than you know what I actually paid out. So. And then the, the, the third way that contractors will estimate stuff is they'll just look at what the market is or could be for this job and just say, well, everybody's charging whatever, $5,000 for a bathroom, so I'm going to charge $5,000 for a bathroom. I don't really know how to estimate it. I didn't really pull the number out of nowhere because I at least have some sense of what people charge, but that's what I'm going to charge for. So to what extent am I as the investor uh, or as the the person who's building the home, hiring the contractor, am I allowed to push back on the pricing? Now, now you know, it's like if you're listening to this podcast right now, you're saying, wow, that John Errico is, is teaching me a thing or two. I need to go back to my general contractor and make sure that everything that I'm being charged at is right. So where is that balance? How do you approach that process? And and what is sort of the right and wrong way to go about it uh, if you feel that a pricing is off? This is going to depend on who you're dealing with. If you're talking about the contractor who just pulls a number out of his backside and that number is 15000 and he truly just made it up out of thin air, you may go back to him and say, hey, that seems a little high. And then he'll come back to you and say, all right, let's make this happen. When you're dealing with somebody who really knows what they're talking about, 
generally there's a methodology to how they came up with their number. So if they come back to you and say, this bathroom renovation is going to be $15,000 and you say, hey, that sounds a little high. Can you do any better? Oftentimes they will say, no, my pricing is my pricing. And oftentimes that is rooted in something substantive, but they may say, if your budget, like, what's your budget? This is another reason why communication and transparency and expectation are so important. Because if that person comes back and says, look, I, I really cannot spend more than 13500 on this bathroom renovation, then that contractor can go back and say, okay, well, that is reasonable. Like, we're, we're in the ballpark here. Let's see what we can do to break, you know, to, to get down to your number and to shave some costs down here and there. So maybe you go and you spec a little lower end tile. You don't go some custom imported high end marble and you go with uh, a more cost effective porcelain tile, or you don't, you don't tile all of the, all of the walls from the floor to the ceiling. Maybe you end 48 feet, uh, 48 inches high, or maybe you don't go with a custom shower. You go with some kind of like prefabricated base and you kind of like tile it in and create like a hybrid custom look that way. Yeah. Materials costs are a big thing too. So sometimes contractors will mark up the cost of materials and sometimes they'll itemize them even on the estimate. So they'll say this door is you know, whatever, $150. And you look at it and you're like, well, how could that possibly be? Because I could go to Home Depot and buy the same door for 90 bucks. And if you can, then you could negotiate with the contractor and say, I will just buy these these particular materials. So there's, in an estimate, there will be something called allowances. And those are often the cost of like finished materials. So usually uh, an estimate will, if someone says, hey, I want to redo my bathroom, the cost will include things like drywall and plumbing material, whatever, but some certain higher end finishes like the tile, the bathtub, maybe the vanity will be included as an allowance for the contractor to to buy like a budgeted number. And you could say, look, I, I, I think that's like way too much or I just want to buy the materials or I don't want you to charge a markup on the materials costs, which happens. And, and another thing too is that particularly in higher end stuff, the margin that your contractor is charging is a known thing. It's not a, a secret thing. I, I've seen it in contracts all the time where it's negotiated. So it's like, look, I, you know, we're doing a million dollar project, but I don't want you to take a 12% margin. I want you to take an 11% margin or a 13% margin. And in, in many cases, the general contractor is not really, as I said at the very beginning of this episode, he's not, he or she is not out there swinging the hammer. They're not necessarily the person that's out there putting in the physical labor. So they're subbing out, as in they're hiring someone to do a lot of the work for them, like a plumber, an electrician, maybe a Finnish guy, maybe an HVAC guy, whatever it might be. So the costs that... Are, are, might be known. So, for example, they it might be that you know their their plumber is going to charge them thirty grand, and they're going to take a margin on thirty grand, and pass it along to you. And you can say, look, I don't want you to take a fifteen percent margin. I'm going to reduce it. So that's another way to negotiate is saying, what is your margin? Like, what are your actual costs? Can I? Can you talk to me about it? And they might want to say, sure. On the materials front, the allowances point is is worthwhile to make. And I think in in reality, oftentimes it's generally broken up between rough materials costs and finished materials costs. So the stuff that John alluded to before, like the sheetrock or the lumber behind the wall, that stuff is considered rough materials and those are generally embedded in the scope and embedded in the contractor's cost basis. But the finished stuff is often where you can see significant variance in the allowance because as I said earlier, it could be a super high-end marble or it could be a more run-of-the-mill uh, ceramic or porcelain tile. The other thing I would note about the topic of allowances and who's providing the materials is there are a lot of contractors who point blank will not allow the homeowner to buy materials and I think there's good reason behind it. It may seem like they're just being a hard ass on the on the front end, but from their perspective, if it's on the homeowner to buy the materials, and the homeowner doesn't know what they're doing or only has like a rough idea of what they're doing, they're going to screw up at some point. They're going to buy the wrong size door or they're going to buy the wrong type of vanity or they're going to buy a, a wall hung vanity instead of a freestanding one. And the contractor is going to say, hey, well, it's more time intensive and more expensive for me to install this you already have this here where they're going to lose time on the project because you're going to have to go return this and get a new one or I'm going to have to charge you or slap you with a change order. So there are a number of reasons why a contractor may not want you to do that. And it's not, it may not just be 
to extract more cash out of you. You know, and, and I want to put in an important side note to the pricing conversation before we finish it up, because I realized we didn't talk specifically about, quote unquote, what subcontractors are. Just to clarify here, I'm going to use a football analogy. The GC, I guess, is kind of acting like the quarterback here. He's running the offense and the subcontractors sort of act like the offensive line. And for those who really know football, you know, you can't really have play good offense without a good offensive line. And so he's sort of orchestrating, he or she, excuse me, is sort of orchestrating the people up front to try to make sure that the project is moving smoothly. And that's where it's, I think it's a careful dance here. Um, well, making, I would say that the, I, I think the GC is more like the coach. I okay. wouldn't even say that the quarterback. He's not playing the game. I mean, he's, he's <laughs> playing the game. He's overseeing it. You're right. He's not he's swinging not, the hammer. He's he, not touching the ball, but he is yeah, very much minutes and getting this analogy right. <laughs> no, no, but it, it's, it's a really important point. I'm glad you brought it up. I, I really want to talk about it. So I have a relative who's building a house right now, and he's hired a builder to build his house. And some people out there might think, oh, you've hired a builder. So the builder is going to come up, you know, call it John's building company. Like the builder is going to come up with John's uh, guys and John's going to come and he's going to have his guys putting up the framing and pouring the foundation and putting up the drywall. And you as a client might say like, oh, wait a second. Like when I pull up to the house, nothing says John's on it. And it says, you know, Bob's like Bob's plumbing company. Like who the hell's Bob? I didn't hire Bob. <clears throat> the reality is that you know, in my specific example, my relative who's building a house, his builder is two people. It's one guy and a secretary. That's the whole company. He's the general contractor. But what he is doing is subbing out all of the work to other people. And how construction can get really expensive is the more people you sub out work to, the more margins there are for people to, to collect money on. So I had a project recently where I worked with a, a general contractor who actually subbed out the entire thing to a different general contractor who then subbed that out to the trades, trades being electricians, plumbers, whatever. So what a subcontractor is, is those are the people that are actually doing the work. They actually have employees that are out there putting pipes together, putting up drywall, swinging the hammers, doing that stuff. And you as the owner or the investor might not ever know exactly who these people are because you have no, your interface with them is through your general contractor. But you, you might not have any idea who's doing the plumbing or the electrical work. Even in projects that Ryan and I have been very involved in where we've used a general contractor, we haven't had any clue about who some of these people are. But if you think about it, in my case before where I had a general contractor who himself hired a general contractor who then hired subs, Think about how much margin there is in that. You know, say that the say that the subcontractor said, "Oh, look, it's ten thousand dollars for me for for my guys to do the labor and materials, and I'm going to charge you twelve thousand dollars because I need to take a twenty percent margin." Then the general contractor says, "Well, it's twelve thousand dollars to me. I need to take a margin on that, so I'm going to charge twenty percent on that." And then my general contractor, who I'm talking with, says, "Well, I need to charge twenty percent on that." So at the end of the day, I'm spending you know maybe six thousand dollars more just because these guys wanted to sub out all of the work to other people. What we do um, and what very large construction companies do is they have almost everything in-house. So they'll have guys that actually work for them that swing hammers that go out to the job site and actually do labor. So in our company, and, and one of the reasons why our costs, I think generally are pretty low, why we're very efficient and why we started the company is because we have guys out there that go and actually do construction work. They do framing, finishing, um, put up walls, tile, whatever it is. We don't sub that out. We do sub out things like plumbing and electrical work. And that's usually for both experience issues and for licensing and permitting issues. But it is worthwhile to ask your general contractor, look, how, what do you do any work in-house? Do you sub it all out? It's not a bad thing if they don't do any work in-house, but it's important to know that that has a really significant difference on your cost basis um, if you're doing work in-house versus subbing it and out. And I, I think that's a unique question and Ryan, I want to jump to you on this. It's just a unique thing to hear specifically for new investors, but really everybody in the business, because I think a lot of people would feel uncomfortable asking a question like that, because it's almost like asking someone, well, do you actually do anything that I'm paying you for? But the realities are, if you understand the ins and outs of the business and understand the dynamics of what a GC really does as the coach of the team, sort of organizing the players, then it's actually absolutely vital for you to do that and to think about it when you're negotiating margins on a job, Ryan. To counter John's example, I think that that illustrates what can be seen as like the dark side of the construction industry, where it's just essentially daisy chaining work with somebody taking a little bit of profit every step of the way. There are instances where that structure works quite well. There are companies that are, as John alluded to earlier, like a one or two man shop where all they do is construction management and they have 
a subcontractor or a tradesman for every specific trade that goes into the project. So everything is highly specialized, and that in and of itself can create certain efficiencies. If you think about a company like ours with employees that do a varying degree or assortment of work, everything from tile to sheetrock to framing, these guys are quite skilled and quite capable, and, and I think we've been, on the whole, quite pleased with their work. But if you compare that to a company that does exclusively hanging of drywall or exclusively tiling or exclusively flooring, relatively speaking, those companies are going to be faster and more efficient, which in certain cases can create certain cost efficiencies. If they're paying roughly the same amount for their for their labor and their guys are working on that one thing and they can do it in half the time, then that's roughly half the cost basis on the labor side. So even if you factor in that subcontractor's margin in a vacuum and in this kind of like perfect scenario, when general contracting and quote unquote construction management is done well, it can create a lot of efficiencies and it can create a lot of cost savings. But the caveat is really in the logistics and the scheduling because you don't have control over those guys. Yeah, and the caveat to me is done well because that's, you know, if you want to find a general contractor, it's important to consider that they have their own context in the industry. They have their own subcontractors. We just had an example. We were working with the general contractor and that general contractor subbed out the flooring work. Even though we had, we, we were sort of working on our, on our own, but we'd been working with a general contractor in the past and the general contractor said, we'll do the flooring work. And they indicated that the flooring guys that they had were going to come in, they're going to rock and roll. So they said, they're going to get- Quote, unquote. Quote, unquote. They said, <laughs> they're going to get- what, like 3,000 square foot? I, I don't know. Yeah, like 20, 2,500 square feet. 2,500 square feet of flooring done in like a day and a half. And they kept telling us this, right? And we were like, great, because that's, that's what Ryan was talking about. Got, yeah, we're going to pay more for them and subcontract it out. There's going to be margins, whatever, whatever. But they can get it done in a day and a half. Great. For our guys, it might take a week because it's a lot of flooring to lay. And so it was determined like Friday's the day they're going to come in on Friday. So we're excited. We're like, oh my gosh, these guys these guys must be amazing, right? They're going to come in. They're going to go crazy. They're going to bring in like 10 guys and do the whole thing. And so we were there like, you know, I think we were there like 830 because we were there for something else. We're like, there's nobody here. There's nobody here. There's nobody. Finally, like one or two guys kind of like roll in around like 11, 1130. We're just kind of like, oh, okay, like I guess you're here now, so you're going to go crazy, right? And like, you know, it took them probably what, like four days or five days? Well, or? the first day they, I think in the entire day, completed two rooms out of eight or so. They came in with an attitude. They were very... They were very angry. Like, contrite with me. Um, they listened they, to the loudest Latino how, music. How dare you make them come in at 11, John? How dare you? <laughs> listen to the loudest music I've ever heard human beings actually <laughs> listen to, like, for enjoyment. And on top of that, they, they specifically asked me to have our guys move all of the boxes of flooring up to the third floor and I think put all of the boxes in their respective rooms so that they could focus on, quote unquote, their task of laying the flooring. And they left all of their garbage, like all of their garbage, like all of the boxes, <laughs> all of the scraps, everything like that. But I think I think the answer is, because we've, we've gone from the bad side to the good side and then instinctually sort of back to the bad side, because we always remember, I think, those things that go wrong, is that there's there's good and bad in both. And, yeah. that, and that there are good GCs and bad GCs and you need to do your homework as best as you possibly can to find that person who's right for you. So, so briefly, I just want to recap what we've done so far because we've covered a lot. In lamest terms, I would say communication and expectation, making those things clear is vitally important, that knowledge is power, knowing as much as you possibly can about what you're going to be going to do uh, for your project can only help both you and the contractor you work with, and understanding and defining your scope as clearly as possible. I know that's very difficult for non-investors and people without construction backgrounds, but as much research as you can do for your specific area can only help you. And we've gone into already pricing and we're always open to questions, comments, and concerns. So reach out to us if you want us to revisit this topic in future episodes. But for now, I want to pivot to another portion of the business, still working with the general contractors, which is permitting and licensing. Um, so as we touched on this very briefly at the beginning of the episode, but first and foremost, maybe the difference between a licensed contractor and a non-licensed contractor. Jens, maybe you can talk to us a little bit about what is the difference uh, in working with these guys uh, and gals and when is it appropriate to use one versus the other, or is there a difference? The correct answer, I think, is to use a licensed and insured contractor for anything you're going to do. 
I would say that the reality is a little bit different. If you're talking about you had a little leak or you had like uh, some kind of like stain on your wall in your living room and you just want to paint a little bit of like a small five by five patch, you're not going to call in a license or you don't need to call in a licensed and insured general contractor to come in and, and paint that and do that little bit of like handyman work. That is classic handyman work. And and it's over, frankly, it's, I think it's overkill to bring in a licensed, insured general contractor who's used to working on $300,000 projects to come in and, and attack a job like that. Yeah, it's actually, it's a little bit sad that the industry is in this such a way, but it is expensive to get a license and it is expensive to have insurance that is commensurate with the amount of work that you're doing. So it is the case that being a licensed and insured contractor is just more expensive than hiring someone without a license or insurance. And I think that's actually a shame because I agree with Ryan that the right way to do it, I'm not so much concerned about the license, but insurance is a big issue. If you're inviting somebody into your house to do work, and they get hurt and they don't have insurance, that's a problem. Um, you have a problem from the perspective of a homeowner. Having said that, have I had people in my houses that don't have licenses or specifically don't have insurance do work that might be considered you know, hazardous or uh, possible you know, injury capability? Like, yes, I've, I've absolutely done that because that's the reality that it doesn't make sense for me to pay, as Ryan said, someone with uh, a license or insurance to do that type of work. So can you guys talk a little bit about what kind of work requires a permit? Because we're, we're sort of, I think, beating around the bush and saying, well, you know, there, there's certain work we just know is handyman work. But a lot of people listening may not know the difference. So what, what might be just a few examples of just handyman work versus work that really would require a permit, maybe even from a, a licensed contractor? It's hard to say because it's going to depend a lot on where you are. Even so where we are in New Jersey, I would think is one of the most regulatorily heavy environments for this type of thing in maybe the whole country. So, you know, the joke in New Jersey is that like you, you drive a nail into a piece of wood or a screw into a wall and you need a permit. And that's, you know, not entirely untrue. I mean, not that literally, but that type of attitude is not entirely untrue. There are some obvious things that I don't think require permits anywhere, like painting does not require a permit generally. In this area, laying new flooring doesn't require permitting, although I think taking up existing flooring possibly might. I'm not I'm not entirely sure. Very bizarrely, uh, putting in a new roof doesn't require a permit in New Jersey. And I believe that is a recent change. It's a recent change. Um, why is that? I have no idea. I guess the... Effective lobbying? The perhaps? roofing lobby has uh, either failed or succeeded, depending on <laughs> if it's good or bad for them. So... Obvious things that require permits will be extensive renovations like a new kitchen, a new bathroom, almost anything that you do with plumbing that is beyond like repairing a very small leak will require a permit, um, major additions, extensions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Again, it's the general contractor's job and purpose to know what permits are required, how to get the permits, how to work with the city. That's really a lot of times the expertise that you're paying when you're going with a good general contractor. Beyond all the things we, other, we said before, knowing the permitting process is very opaque. Even we who do this all the time, there are still things that come up regarding permitting and working with the city that are hard to anticipate and they're different city, city to city. So that's frustrating. And tied in with the permitting issue is the licensing issue. On, a, on bigger jobs in particular, you're often not just looking at one trade or one permit. There are usually going to be multiple subcodes that are applicable there. So you may, if you're doing a kitchen renovation, you may be looking at the building subcode and you're also going to be subject to the electrical subcode, plumbing subcode, potentially fire subcode. And each of those is overseen a little bit differently. Um, and that is the reason why you need all of these different subcontractors because they will each carry their relevant licenses. So a home improvement contractor, which is the type of license that we have, that only really applies to the building subcode aspect of the job. Your electrician will carry, will have an electrical license um, and will also have insurance that specifically covers the nature of work that the electrician performs. Likewise with the plumber, likewise with an HVAC contractor, 
Likewise, maybe not from a licensing standpoint, but from an insurance standpoint with something like a roofing contractor. You know, Ryan, I think it's good that you actually bring up some of these subdivided sections and requirements for building because one of the things we want to jump into when we talk about licenses and permitting is also inspections. One of the biggest responsibilities of a GC is to get you all the way through the inspection process with the various municipalities that you're building in. So maybe you guys can, I'm going to ask this as simply as I can, which is sort of a theme of this episode. You know, when it comes to inspections, how do I pass? Well, normally that is not something that you as the owner of a project would really have to worry about. So if you have a good general contractor, they will take care of the inspections and the permitting and working with the city and whatever else. Sometimes you are aware of them occurring because payment can be tied to that. So a lot of general contractors will say, you know, you owe me a deposit at this point and then you owe some more money after the rough inspections are done. So what normally will happen is that a contractor will pull permits and at some point in the process, they will begin doing work and the city will mandate that once a certain amount of work is done, an inspection has to occur. Oftentimes the rough process is, say a plumber has put in new plumbing, but the walls haven't been closed. So all the plumbing is exposed. That would be the point of time in which a rough plumbing inspection would occur analogously for electrical, HVAC, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you as a homeowner don't really have to worry so much about passing that or doing anything with it. If the contractor has messed up and is unable to pass uh, inspections, messing up is maybe not even the right concept. It could be just the case that the contractor and the city have a disagreement about what is required. But if for whatever reason uh, the inspection isn't passed, it is important to generally know that it's normally not on you as the owner to care about that or to pay more about it. Some unscrupulous general contractors might say, well, I didn't pass inspections and now I have to do a bunch more work so they're going to pay me more money. That's usually not how most arrangements occur. Maybe it's the case that because of the additional work required, the scope will change and a a change order will be required because something really unexpected has happened based on what the city has said. But if that's a possibility, I would really prefer both as a client and also as a contractor to have communicated that or or know that originally if that was a possibility. Ryan? Uh, John hit the nail on the head with that. Your ability to pass inspections and the speed with which you pass inspections is going to be determined largely by your team, and that's why it's critically important to have a general contractor with experience in that municipality and who has a network of trades, i.e. plumbers, electricians, HVAC contractors, who have the same degree of experience in that municipality because if they've done it before, they can do it again, and a lot of those disagreements or barriers of um, barriers to communication when it comes to expectations for the subcode inspector should be avoided by their prior experiences. And that's where maybe relationships that your GC has with the city can also come into play. Uh, I think a lot of GCs like to, to sort of talk up maybe what cities or what areas they have better relationships in because they feel it does and probably does make a little bit of a difference at times where uh, inspections are concerned. And while it is somewhat of a footnote because it's not your responsibility, I think both points uh, should be well taken, particularly for, for newer investors that if something goes wrong, it is really not on you. So in this theme of pricing, be aware of that because if a contractor comes back to you and as well, I need to charge you more. You should be aware of of, of what's going on and, and why they're coming to you and, and saying that. Um, so I want to uh, sort of as a, a bookend here, I still want to talk a little bit about some questions about finishes. But first, most of what we've been talking about really falls under the ca- category of, of something that's called capital expenditures, CapEx. Um, and obviously, there are different ways that investors uh, look at and treat their properties. If you're coming in investing in flip, then CapEx is probably more of a concern than repairs and maintenance, which has more relevance to people who are maybe holding their property long term or currently managing their properties under their umbrella. So guys, maybe we can talk a little bit about the difference here um, and just distinguishing them and defining the term of, again, repairs and maintenance versus CapEx. These are really uh, accounting distinctions. So a capital expenditure is something that is going to go into your basis in the property. So oftentimes capital expenditures are akin to fixed improvements that are going to improve the capital asset or improve the asset on the books. So if you have a house and you spend $15,000 to install a new HVAC system that wasn't previously there, that would be considered a capital improvement and thus goes on the books as a capital expenditure. 
the repairs and maintenance classification is just as it says. It is repairs and it is maintenance in nature. So if you already have that HVAC system and you need to replace an air filter or you need to replace a broken component of your furnace, that is generally classified as repairs and maintenance because you are repairing or maintaining an existing component of your system. So when it comes to tax time, the the main distinction is your repairs and maintenance are taken as an expense, whereas capital expenditures or capital improvements may go onto the books a little bit differently and maybe they may go into your basis in the property, which in a roundabout way can ultimately be taken as an expense, but is generally done so in the form of depreciation. And this is a whole other topic for uh, a tax expert or for a tax expert uh, or a CPA to come in and, and opine on, but high level, that's, that's the distinction. So for, for a final topic here to bookend the segment, I do want to talk about the types of finishes that people look for, want, ask or ask for, excuse me, from their general contractors. This is going to fold in nicely, I think, with the pricing conversation and how to approach and the dynamic between your GC. But maybe if you guys can talk from your bank of expertise about the kinds of finishes you might want for different types of projects and what are some of the cost differences, implications, et cetera, from being, you know, maybe more specific and wanting something like a luxury finish to something more basic uh, when you're working this out with your GC? Yeah, I think this is more of a general investing question than necessarily a general contractor specific question. But it's certainly important to consider the end goal of any project that you're working on as an investor or, you know, even as a homeowner. So as Ryan alluded to a while ago, homeowners, you know, the expectation could be that a homeowner might want higher end or maybe more particular finishes to their particular needs or tastes. Whereas from an investment perspective, more than likely you're going to be tailoring the project to the end goal of either a flip or a rental. So if it's a flip, you need to take into consideration the neighborhood, what other flips are in the neighborhood, what pricing is sort of like for the property that you have. And as a rental, you need to take into consideration the fact that there might be people living in the property that are not going to treat your property as well as you might assume that a you know, a, a primary occupant would treat it as someone as their own home. So it's it's something that I, I really wish from a general contracting side that more clients would ask us about. Um, many We have experience both as general contractors, but I would say primarily we are real estate investors and we, we know a lot about certain neighborhoods, certain areas, what things are priced at. A lot of times people will come in with a project and they'll say, hey, I want to put quartz countertops here. And my response is that, well... That's nice, but it doesn't make any sense at all to put quartz countertops in a rental in a very low-income area. Um, it's the qu- crazy. The question you should always ask yourself when you're looking at an investment property or a rental property is, will this finish in some way result in either higher rent or lower expenses over the long haul? Exactly. That's not to say that you, as an investor, you should skimp on finishes. Mm-hmm. Um, I, th- I think it's important to consider both the quality of the finish in terms of aesthetics, but also the longevity of that finish. So I've actually had this conversation in the past um, with other investors who do work and who owns a property in some lower end markets, and they will often go with laminate countertops in their kitchens. And while I think there there are clearly two schools of thought on this, um, but I tend to fall on the side of the argument that I would rather over-improve a little bit and put in something like granite countertops as opposed to a laminate countertop because while it may not have all that much of an impact when it comes to the rents, that granite countertop should last far longer than a laminate countertop would. And if it saves me both the cost and the headache of having to replace it, you know, five years or 10 years down the line, then that's worth something to me. And whether it whether it can be qualified in the form of rent or qualified in the way of not being an expense in year five or year 10, but rather in year 15 or year 20, then there's value to that. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's important too to consider though, even if it's a rental, how long are you going to keep the property? I mean, sometimes investors will talk about, I had this guy in Connecticut actually who managed a bunch of properties and also invested in stuff. And he was trying to sell us a building and he kept saying, yeah, you know, I juiced it. I juiced the building. <laughs> and I, so I was sort of like, what, like, what does that mean? He's like, well, I, I, what he ultimately meant is that he'd owned the building for about 10 years and he had done a lot of renovation work when he 
bought it. And after 10 years, it just so happens that a lot of consumer components start to break. So like hot water heaters generally have like a 10, 15 year lifespan. Sometimes a roof might have a 10 year lifespan, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So what he was trying to say is that he did all the work and now 10 years later, he has to put in a lot of money to get it back up to a normal standard. There are going to be a lot of expenditures that is about to happen. So he wants to offload it because he doesn't want to pay for those anymore. And that's okay. I mean, Alternatively, he could have put in a roof that would last 40 years. He could have put in a maybe higher quality hot water heater that would have lasted 20 years, but he didn't. And that was his investing strategy, and that's okay. And so. these are the decisions as an investor as well as a homeowner that you need to make as, as you go forward. And I think you got to think of the opportunity costs of investing today, maybe in higher quality materials and finishes versus uh, this individual who, I mean, 10 years is a long time, but now that he's ready to to sell, he maybe is regretting not, quote, juicing his property a little bit more. He's extracted all exactly. of the juice from him. <laughs> All of the juice. And, and honestly, what it tells you, you know, we mentioned, I, I want to talk more about this, but we're going to do this in the next episode about some of those invariable uh, factors, which we mentioned already, things like, sorry, Ryan. I was going to say, one of, one of those invariable factors also is while your rent may be what your rent is going to be, and that may not change depending on the finishes, you may attract five or 10 applicants to a listing if you put in like one upgrade like granite countertops. Stainless that, steel kitchen appliances. Right. That you may, whereas if you don't, your rent may, may be the same, but you maybe only get two or three applicants and having that larger pool to choose from will allow you to pick the most qualified candidate. And that, my friends, is all the time we have for this episode. We are going to continue with a part two to managing the construction process where we take you through the ending period, the payment schedules, uh, how to address any issues or any successes at the end of your construction project. So make sure you tune in next week to our episode nine, Managing the Construction Process 2. Uh, also, uh, feel free to reach out to us on Facebook at Brick by Brick. That's Brick X Brick. Uh, subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, if you need any construction work in the northern New Jersey area, make sure you're going to libertyhudson.com. Gentlemen, thank you so much for your time and your expertise as always.